All right. Well, we can uh, we can get started talking about this. Uh, just out of curiosity, uh, this is probably not one of her more anthologized stories, so I don't expect that many people have read it. But um, has anyone read this story before? Okay. Um, so I'm going to give a uh, I'll give a sort of quick overview of the plot of the story, just for kind of context, and then we'll run, kind of run through it on a little bit more of a kind of granular level, and we might also be, depending on time, jumping back and forth a little bit with some more kind of theological um, material, because Flannery O'Connor always sort of has that in her mind. She there was a nun who went to her house and lived in her house one summer and looked at all of her theology books and read all of her annotations, and she was always um, really into it. And sometimes you see her ideas um, coming out in very kind of vivid ways in her story. But as I kind of alluded to in the preview, the basic plot here is there's this woman, Mrs. Cope, who lives on a farm with her daughter, um, who I don't think um, has a name in this. I think she's just uh, the girl. But, and she has a, they have a one, um, there's just because of the context, there's some sort of sensitive um, race stuff in the story. I'm not going to, I don't plan to go into it a lot during the main kind of portion of the talk, but we can certainly talk about it during Q&A, but she's got um, one white farmhand named Mr. Pritchard and Mrs. Pritchard, his wife, um, is Mrs. Cope's kind of friend. They're in a little bit of a relationship where Mrs. Cope is her boss, but Mrs. Pritchard is also the closest thing that she has to a friend. Um, and they have two um, black farmhands who don't seem to have as much kind of social um, much of a kind of friendship with Mrs. Cope. Um, but what happens is there are, at the beginning of the story, she and Mrs. Pritchard are talking. They see three boys coming onto the property, um, onto her farm. One of the boys is named Powell, and his father used to work on the farm. And since his father was working, on the farm, he eventually moved out and took his boy with them. We don't know why, and Powell's father um, died in Florida, and Powell's mother has remarried, and now Powell is just kind of um, just kind of hanging in the wind right now between uh, the where then the story is set, which is late summer um, and the beginning of the school term, and he takes his two kids and he says, "I remember this farm where we were growing up." It was paradise. It was paradise. Um, they had horses you can ride. Everything is green and beautiful. Uh, this farm is incredible. And the kids get there, and they want to ride the horses. And Mrs. Cope's immediate thought is she's terrified of being sued. Um, she's just terrified of being sued. And that's not her biggest fear, though. Her biggest fear is that the woods across from her house are going to burn down. She's terrified of a fire. And I think 
we'll get a little bit more into the kind of symbolic universe of the story, but um, I think what the fire symbolizes is the destructive force, and it doesn't really symbolize it, it's kind of just what it is, is a destructive force that is beyond um, the control of human beings. No matter how tightly you kind of bear down, and Mrs. Cope really bears down, as we'll see. She, she has the best kept farm in, the, in the, that part of the country, as she's always reminding people. Um, and the fire is this kind of great, out of control, destructive force that is what she fears. And so the kids come, and she's not going to let them stay in the farmhouse, um, partly because she doesn't want them there, and partly because she has a daughter, roughly the boy's age, and that would have been, been some pretty strong notions of propriety about that. Um, in this time, and she won't let him smoke in the barn because one of them, the bigger kid named Garfield, um, kind of a, just kind of dumb joke there by Flannery O'Connor. I think she's referring to the comic book cat. She always enjoyed kind of little jokes like that. But um, Garfield smokes cigarettes, and so she won't let him stay in the barn because he smokes, and she won't let him stay in the woods because she's scared of the woods catching fire. So Mrs. Cope lives her life really is just about maintaining this farm. Um, and she doesn't want new relationships with these kids who come in. She doesn't want to sort of fulfill any moral obligations. These are, um, one of these is an orphan of one of her former tenants, after all. Um, but she pushes them away because she must maintain her farm. And I think you have to have some sympathy for her. She is a single mother trying to run a farm by herself, trying to keep the place up. There's an allusion to um, a man, her husband, who, for whatever reason, is out of the story. He's not here anymore. And she's got to keep it up. And she's got to raise a daughter by herself. And she's got to keep everything together and you see her in this struggle and I think you can have a lot of sympathy for her but you also see she is really ruled by fear. Um, I'm going to start out here just by reading part of this conversation and I might skip around a little bit between Mrs. Cope and Mrs. Pritchard. Um, the way it starts is they're looking out at the line of trees that kind of shields the farm, like a solid gray blue wall. Um, but this afternoon it was almost black and behind it the sky was a livid glaring white. The sun going down behind the trees, a livid glaring white. And Miss Pritchard says, you know that woman that had that baby in that iron lung? Um, gave birth in an iron lung. Miss Pritchard said, um, and Mrs. Cope responds kind of noncommittally. I read about her, and Ms. Pritchard says, she was a Pritchard that married a Brookins, and so's kin to me about my seventh or eighth cousin by marriage. Well, well, Mrs. Cope muttered and threw a large clump of nut grass behind her. She worked at the weeds and the nut grass as if they were an evil sent directly by the devil to destroy the place. Being she was kin to us, we gone to see the body, Mrs. Pritchard said. Seen the little baby, too. Mrs. Cope didn't say anything. She was used to these calamitous stories. She said they wore her to a frazzle. 
Mrs. Pritchard would go 30 miles for the satisfaction of seeing anybody laid away. <laughs> Mrs. Cope always changed the subject to something cheerful, but the child had observed that this only put Mrs. Pritchard in a bad humor. The child thought the blank sky looked as if it were pushing against the fortress wall, trying to break through. The trees across the near field were a patchwork of gray and yellow greens. Mrs. Cope was always worrying about fires in her woods. She would pray, oh Lord, do pray there won't be any fires. It's so windy and the child would grunt from behind her book or not answer at all because she heard it so often. And Ms. Cope would say, look at the sunset, it's gorgeous. And the child would scowl and say, it looks like a fire. You better get up and smell around and see if the woods ain't on fire. She had her arm around, the cof around it in the coffin, Mrs. Pritchard went on, but her voice was drowned out by the sound of the tractor. Um, and then um, one of the black farmhands, Culver, is trying to get his tractor around the gate, and Mrs. Cope who must ration the fuel and optimize everything, doesn't want him to take the long way, wants them to get out and stop and open the gate. But after that, we come back to the iron lung. Um, she says, I thank the Lord that all these things don't come at once. This is Ms. Cope. They'd destroy me. Yeah, they would, Mrs. Pritchard shouted against the sound of the tractor. I don't see myself how she had the baby in it, she went on in her normal voice. Mrs. Cope is digging fiercely at the nutgrass again. We have a lot to be thankful for. Every day should say a prayer of thanksgiving. Do you do that? Yes, am See, she was in it four months before she even got that away, got pregnant. Looks like to me if I was in one of them, I would leave off. How do you reckon they? Every day I say a prayer of thanksgiving, Mrs. Cope says. Think of all we have, Lord. We have everything. And she looked around at her rich pastures and hills heavy with timber and shook her head as if it might all be a burden she were trying to shake off her back. Um, what we can see in Mrs. Cope, I think, the, um, first of all, the weed pulling. She's fiercely weeding as if every weed is sent directly from the devil. And at the kind of literal level, she is working in her farm, but she's pulling up these stalks of grass on this kind of feudal task. The farm's probably hundreds of acres, but she's working at the weeds as if everyone is sent directly by the devil. And this is a reference to the parable of the wheat and the tares in the Bible, where um, Jesus says, a man had some weed and some weeds growing, and they were both kind of young and had recently been planted, and the servants go out there and said, should we pull up all the weeds? And the master of the house says to the servants, no, because you don't know which ones are uh, weeds and which ones are wheat. You might inadvertently pull up some wheat with the weeds. Let them grow until the harvest. Um, the idea being God does the judging. We can't reliably distinguish how to extirpate evil ourselves. We are poor judges um, of what is good and what is evil because um, things have not grown up sort of into their full form. And so I think what you see Mrs. Cope doing with the weeds, it's really characterizing her as somebody who is over-controlling her life, who is attacking what she sees as evil with a vengeance wherever she can find it, and she is living in um, a very small world. So that's 
sort of a physical element of her control and kind of separating the good from the bad. And it's also sort of symbolizes, it has that biblical element. And also parallel to that, um, things to be grateful for and things that are suffering, the good parts of life and the bad parts of life. She is also distinguishing between those and trying to escape the bad parts of life by willfully ignoring them. Um, the iron lung, she doesn't want to hear about the iron lung. Stop talking to me about that. That doesn't happen to people like me. That's not my world. I have so much to be thankful for. Um, and you know, later on, these vagabond kids come to the farm and she says, do you thank God every day? And the kids look at her like she's crazy. Because, yeah, she does have a pretty good amount to be thankful for. Uh, she's well off. These kids don't have a thing. Um, and so there's the irony there where she's trying to just look on the sunny side all of the time because the implication is she feels certain that God, that is where you find God, is in gratitude for your blessings. You do not find God in trials in suffering, in sin, in the bad parts of life. Um, that's not where you find God. One, look at the time here, one um, kind of side thing I'll talk about for a second is the sort of Augustinian idea of evil. Um, I think Jeff talked about it briefly in his talk. For Augustine, evil is not an entity that kind of has its own being. Evil is the um, lack of good, the kind of privation of good, or the distortion um, of good. So when Mrs. Pritchard is fixated on pain and suffering and all of that, she's not just trying to be morbid or just trying to get attention. She's not fixated on evil for its own sake, and she's not just a gossip or just a busybody. Um, in the sort of Augustinian world where what looks evil is actually sort of distorted, twisted, uh, privated good, everybody sort of has a role to play. So the busybody gossip kind of fixated on the grotesque and bizarre Mrs. Pritchard is helping to shepherd um, Mrs. Cope along. She is trying to prepare her. There is nothing bad in Mrs. Cope's world yet. But she needs to know that it's out there and she needs to know that it's a possibility. And also just to kind of point out how good Flannery O'Connor is at kind of weaving together the literal <coughs> meaning and the symbolic meaning, weaving them to the point that they're perfectly unified. Um, when Mrs. Pritchard says, you know, I think she's my eighth or ninth cousin, I'm kin to her, it's a funny kind of, you know, southern kind of thing to say. You want to have some connection to the sensational thing, and you're going to go to the funeral. But at the same time, Mrs. Pritchard is putting herself in the human family. The iron lung happens to people like me. Um, that happens to, I am part of the human race that suffers and travails. And Mrs. Cope is coping, just trying to cope, just trying to push the bad stuff away, ignore it, keep her farm the best kept place in the country, tear out the weeds, 
bear down, and that's how she will um, find the good in life. She will make it herself by control and discipline. But Mrs. Pritchard keeps trying to sort of shepherd her. Mrs. Pritchard knows that life is hard, and she knows that a fall is coming. The fall does come. The suffering does come. And she, she's not just being a busybody. She is, but she's also trying to... She gets unhappy when Mrs. Cope changes the subject because Mrs. Pritchard recognizes the truth um, that life is hard and that suffering and sin and death are out there, and she wants Mrs. Cope to uh, see that too. Um, so quick note, Mrs. Cope does says, well, I think of all those poor Europeans, she went on, I'm at the top of the second page, that got put in boxcars like cattle and rode them to Siberia. Lord, she said, we ought to spend half the time on our knees. Mrs. Pritchard, I know if I was in an iron lung, there'd be some things I wouldn't do. <laughs> um, even that poor woman had plenty to be thankful for. So she's acknowledging the suffering in Europe. Yeah, bad stuff happens over there and all those weirdos in Siberia. Um, not in my world. Lord, thank you that I am not like those people, that that isn't my life, that I keep my farm uh, spick and span everything in order. But uh, Mrs. She says, I have the best kept place in the country, and do you know why? Because I work. I've had to work to save this place and work to keep it. She emphasized each word with a trowel, just stabbing at those weeds. Um, I don't let anything get ahead of me, and I'm not always looking for trouble. I take it as it comes. So she as I will see with the kids, she does anything but take it as it comes, but she can reach the good in this well-ordered place, free of suffering and free of outsiders and free of interference that kind of barren too, but she can reach that place because she works, because she has discipline, but that creates a burden. If she lets a bit of it get beyond her, suddenly she is out of the good place, she is out of grace. She is out there in the darkness like the Europeans or the woman in the iron lung. And who knows if God is there. People were talking earlier about, um, a couple of times this conference have spoken about how we need to be forgiven sometimes before we can repent. And I think likewise, Mrs. Cope can't recognize, she can't identify with the sufferer because she's too scared to because she doesn't know if God is really there or not. She doesn't know if there's anything redemptive there. Um, it's just kind of the outer darkness. And Mrs. Pritchard kind of gives her a hypothetical, says, if it all come at once at some time, Mrs. Pritchard began, it doesn't all come at once, Mrs. Cope said sharply. <laughs> Even her grammar, you know, making sure to correct um, and get everything right. And Mrs. Pritchard said, well, if it ever did, it wouldn't be nothing you could do but fling up your hands. Um... And so then the children come, um, and Mrs. Cope, uh, they want to ride the horses, and she says, no, you can't ride the horses. Uh, she tries to feed them crackers, and the small kid says, these aren't the kind of crackers I like. <laughs> you know, it's easy to look at this. Um, Y'all can kind of skim some of that section of that kids, but... Um, you know, it's, it's easy to look at the kids just as ingrate. She's giving them food and they don't want it. But 
Powell keeps, she keeps talking about food, and Powell keeps talking about his memories on the farm. What the kids want is to be able to use the farm, to use God's land. And think about it. If you're a kid, you think everything belongs to you. You run around, you know, all over the place, no matter where you are, and kind of everything is a fun adventure. You don't think about whether it's yours or not. Uh, sometimes that's a bad thing, but it's also part of the sort of childlike faith that Jesus talks about children receive. And what they want to do is relive some of their favorite kind of childhood memories. Um, and Powell wants to show his friends those memories, but Mrs. Cope, the controlling one, thinks she can buy them off with food. Here, I'll feed you. Um, and then after a little bit, she says, uh, I'm trying to find the quote. She says, uh, like, well, it was great to, you know, great to meet y'all. Thank y'all for coming by. Um, you know, like you talk with somebody for 30 seconds and say, great to see you. Okay, now we're separating. And that's what she does with the kids. She says, thank y'all. Um, thank y'all for coming here. And the kids want to stay the night. They want to... Um, they want to relive this. And at first, there's just a small conflict. The kids want to go in the woods, but she says, those are my woods. I don't want you smoking. I'm scared of fires in my woods. And the kid, Garfield says, her woods. Um, kind of incredulous. Um, and they keep going, and the conflict kind of escalates. And what eventually happens, um, what eventually happens, the boys don't get picked up their uncle the, by their uncle the next day. Like, they think they're going to. She tries to buy them off with food again, and the kids said, we got plenty of our own food. We don't want nothing of yours. We don't want to be bought off. We want to play on the farm. We want to relive our childhood. Um, and at some point with the kids, Miss Pritchard comes and tells her they rode the horses anyway. This is uh, most of the way down page four. Stole a bridle out of the saddle room and rode bareback because Hollis, who I assume is her husband, seen them. He run them out the barn at nine o'clock last night and then he run them out the milk room this morning and there was milk all over their mouths like they'd been drinking out of the cans. I cannot have this, Mrs. Cope said and stood at the sink with her fist knotted at our sides cannot have this, and her expression was the same as when she tore at the nut grass. There ain't a thing you can do about it, Mrs. Pritchard said. What I expect is you'll have them for a week or so until school begins. They just figure to have themselves a vacation in the country, and there ain't nothing you can do but fold your hands. And Mrs. Cope said, I do not fold my hands. And the child chimes in and just wants to go beat them black and blue. This <laughs> is what the child wants to do. It, Mrs. Cope um, thinks that she can control them. She thinks that she can bear down on them by using power, by saying, you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't stay here, these woods are my woods. Eventually she tells the kids, um, I own this place and the, um, this is my property, you have to behave this way. And in picking, she picks a fight with the kids that she can't win. Um, she has everything to lose, and they have nothing to lose. She can't do anything to um, hurt them or discipline them or exercise the 
kind of power that we were hearing about in there, but she tries to exercise it anyway, and it backfires. The kids let um, the oil out of the tractor, and eventually the child goes off searching for him a couple of days later, and they are in the woods, and uh, Powell says, he's got this look of longing on his face, and he says, if I could just burn this place down, I would never have to think about it again. Um, he's kind of tormented with, with longing for this paradisaical place that exists in his memory, but because he cannot um, experience that in actuality, because he can't relive that memory, best just to destroy the place and you never think of it again. So they light a fire and the woods burn down, um, which seems kind of inevitable. But one other thing to... I'll just briefly kind of give the ending here. Um, the child sees him and she comes running out um, and it says again there's Flannery O'Connor's writing in the voice of the time so there's some um, there's some um, racial stuff today that I think we would be uh, certainly very uncomfortable with. Um, but I'm down at the bottom of page six, and it says, Mrs. Cope began to scream, I'll just call them farmhands, for the farmhands, while Mrs. Pritchard, charged now, ran down the road shouting. Mr. Pritchard came out of the open end of the barn, and the two farmhands stopped filling the manure spreader in the lot and started toward Mrs. Cope with their shovels. Hurry, hurry, she shouted. Start throwing dirt on it. They passed her almost without looking at her and headed off slowly across the field toward the smoke. She ran after them, shrilling, hurry, hurry, don't you see it, don't you see it? It'll be there when we get there, Culver said, and they thrust their shoulders forward a little, um, it says earlier, to make it look like they're hurrying, and went on at the same pace. Um, you know, it's not just, it's not shirking or laziness, it is... There's nothing they can do. I mean, there's a forest fire. They're walking over there with shovels. What are they going to do? But Mrs. Cope can't acknowledge it, just like she wants to pretend like people, um, you know, none of her kin would ever be in an iron lung. She also wants to pretend that she can control this forest fire. And by this point, I think the fire, sort of symbolically, what it is, is all of the kind of evil and destruction um, and kind of arbitrary sort of destructiveness of the human heart and the uncontrollability of nature. It is all coming at once it, as Mrs. Pritchard said. What if it all come at once it? And it is, and the shovels uh, are not going to do anything to fight it, and they know that. But again, you see, um, there's the grace. They know that they are powerless against this thing. They are past the point of needing to control but Mrs. Cope still is not, and so they lean their shoulders forward to condescend to her, to let her know, to ease her sense of needing to be in control, as misplaced as it is, to make her think that, uh, that they are responding to her need to control, that she is controlling the situation, because she will find out when these woods burn down that there was nothing she could have done, but she doesn't know it yet, and they're humoring her vanity uh, just for a little bit longer. The child came to a stop beside her mother and stared up at her face as if she had never seen it before. 
It was the face of the new misery she felt, but on her mother, it looked old, and it looked as if it might have belonged to anybody, a Negro or a European or to Powell himself. The child turned her head quickly and past the farmhand's ambling figures, she could see the column of smoke rising and widening unchecked inside the granite line of trees. She stood taut, listening, and could just catch in the distance a few wild high shrieks of joy as if the prophets were dancing in the fiery furnace in the circle the angel had cleared for them. Maybe you think Flannery O'Connor's pushing the uh, kind of biblical stuff a little too much there, but as I understand it, the children don't have anything to lose because they haven't built their self-justification on a piece of land or on their discipline or on having a weed-free garden. Literally and metaphorically, the children are who they are. They are content to be children, like children, before they learn that their worth is in what they do and what they build. And so they are protected from this fire because the only thing the fire will destroy is the property, the trees, the um, balance, kind of the, uh, the income statement, the bottom line of the firm, uh, of the farm. Um, and so they're sort of protected from it. And Mrs. Cope is now brought into the world um, of suffering with her fellow humans. It's a dark story. Often in Flannery O'Connor, towards the end, you see a flicker of grace. Um, and here there's almost not even a flicker of it. You just see Mrs. Cope brought out of her carefully controlled, uh, you know, land of the good. How, how is how do you make life good? How do you get the good things in life? How do you save yourself by controlling every detail? She's brought out of that. It all came at once and she couldn't handle it. Um, and she is ready to um, sort of hear the news of grace. One other thing I wanted to talk about quickly was uh, Flannery O'Connor as a writer. I think part of what's wonderful about her well, actually, before I talk about her, let's give it, before I talk more kind of meta, let's give it a couple of minutes. Does anybody have any questions or any kind of thoughts about, about how the story works? I know that's a quick overview, and um, it's kind of a lot to think about um, on a first kind of skimming, but. Um, I, I could be completely off, but when I, when I first read it, do you, do you think that there could be, at the very end, that last paragraph, do you think that there could be some sort of connection that Flannery was trying to make with the Daniel Three story? Of yeah, 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 certainly. Um, it's, you know, the, the story is, um, for everybody, the uh, Nebuchadnezzar conquered, um, I don't know how much of... Israel and Judah. I know he conquered Jerusalem and I think at least most of Judah. Um, and he took, uh, took away a lot of the most gifted um, young men. It was a way for empires to kind of integrate states that they would try to rule over or to sort of assimilate them. And Daniel was one of these men and he had three others. And uh, they got there and Nebuchadnezzar let me see. Actually, I did not print out the story, the Bible story, but um, Nebuchadnezzar 
they end up, anyway, the three men end up in sort of a contest with some of Nebuchadnezzar's magicians and kind of soothsayers and wise men. Um, and they lose because they are, uh, I think because they're praying to God um, rather than Nebuchadnezzar. And they get thrown into the, a furnace and the people who throw them in um, get incinerated by their proximity to it, but they don't get hurt at all. God saves them. And I think with the Bible connection, I think part of what, to me, part of what Flannery O'Connor's thinking is sort of the captivity from Jerusalem. What is it like to have these children of the people you sort of subjugated return? Um, and I think she's also thinking um, for the people who throw them into the furnace, they get incinerated because Again, I think metaphorically, they have something to lose. They are standing on their own righteousness, on being good soothsayers and wise prophets and divining the signs correctly. But the three people who get thrown into the fire um, are trusting only in God and willing to give up everything. And because of that, like the children at the end, the Israelites are unharmed. That's my reading, at least, of how the Bible story comes in. But you might have add to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. I think she's certain. Yeah, certainly. I think she's thinking about that. Well, yeah. Do you see any interplay here of the Old South versus New South idea that other Southern authors play with, like William Faulkner, how she's tied to the land, and the, uh, in a lot of ways, the old Southern world order and the, the, the kids represent, yeah. the represent the new order? Yeah, I certainly see that. I think she, um, as with a lot of Faulkner characters, she's trying to hang on to this farm. She's trying to maintain this kind of farm in the state that it was in back when her husband was alive and they had two people, you know, running it. And um, she can't maintain it. And I think it becomes a burden to her. And I, uh, the burning, I think, of at the end of one of Faulkner's books, Absalom, Absalom, Clytemnestra, uh, just burns down this ridiculously overblown uh, plantation called, I think, Sutton's Hundred. Um, so yeah, I think there's kind of definitely some parallel stuff because they're both concerned with the same thing. They're really concerned with the human attempts to resist time and sort of build our own enclaves in the world where suffering and for Faulkner especially sort of change uh, don't happen. You know, think the Compsons. Don't even let Caddy see her grandmother's funeral. Yeah, I see some of uh, Go Down Moses in it too. Which part? Go like the bear or? Yeah, well, like the way uh, uh, McCaslin Edmonds is tied to the land in a way that his, his cousin rejects. Yeah. And walks away from. Yeah. And the cousin represents the new world order like the kids. And the, the other cousin represents the tie to the land, trying to cling to the old ways. Yeah, yeah. Although I, I, probably view, uh, I probably view Ike McCaslin as a little bit more of a kind of escapist. But, uh, yeah, well, there, there is that. Sure. But, yeah. Um, any other kind of? Yeah, Maddie. I just have a question. The, like, daughter who, like, never gets named, is, is there some kind of symbolism with her? Because she's kind of, like... Yeah, you know, I think, um, to be honest, I don't really have much of a good idea about that. I think the daughter's a difficult character. When she wants to go beat the boys black and blue, I think, you know, she's just power. Her mom 
wants to exercise power, kind of mediated by these social courtesies. Okay, I fed you. Great, great to see you. You know, thanks for visiting. But it's still power. She has the food. She owns the property. Um, but she thinks that she's being polite and kind of acting through these social forms. And her daughter, in a lot of ways, is more honest. Just I'm going to go line them up and beat them black and blue. <laughs> Um, I see the urges as sort of being the same, but, uh, but the daughter's more direct. Things are simpler there. Um, but again, I don't know. There, does anybody else, or Maddie, do you have any other kind of thoughts on the daughter? Well, I, I only got through the beginning before coming to class, and um, I feel like I was thinking the iron lung and the like, box parts of the Europeans, and then the daughter upstairs. And there's all these people getting put in boxes. I'm not an English major, so I don't know anything about symbols. <laughs> no, that's, I feel like that's important. That's interesting. And when, the, and when the boys come, she's looking out the front window, and then when they get served lunch, she runs to the window in the other bedroom. And yeah, that maybe the boxes would be, I would need to think about it more to kind of think of how to link them and how they would play into the story. Yeah. You know, it, it echoes with so many of her other stories. You know, a good man is hard to find. Mm -hmm. I know you're a good man. You'll do the right thing. You're not going to yeah. kill us. You're, you're, of course, you're not going to kill us. And he puts three holes through her chest. You know? it's, there's this kind of, there's this, I don't know how to describe it, this niceness that, you know, that she's banking on for her life. And I don't give a fuck about your niceness. I'm yeah. Here to kill you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, there is that. Yeah, just burn the woods down. Um, <laughs> We're just going to do it. And I think, you know, part of what you see with Flannery O'Connor, there's, uh, there's one of her stories called the Partridge Festival where these people who have kind of studied fancy criminal justice theories go visit this murderer who's been wrongly accused in prison and they want to, you know, oh yeah, I'm sure he's a good guy and he's this martyr and we're going to build this social cause around him and they see him and he's just leering at the girl and he's just this creep and saying these bizarre things. And I think that's... Um, Flannery O'Connor believes in sin. She thinks there is sin, and it's not the sort of um, view of you know, Plato where if you only knew the good, you would do the good, because it's obvious. Isn't that how a rational human being would act? Um, she shows him the good. She tries to explain reason, but really, because what's in her heart is the uh, libido dominandi, the sort of will to dominate in Augustinian terms. Um, that's what comes out. It ends up just being a power struggle, and it's a struggle the kids can win because she has a lot more to lose. She's got a lot more self-justification um, bought into the equation. Sorry, sorry. Um, the parallels between the story and Flannery's revelation are sorry as well. I don't think I've ever read this particular story, but... <laughs> Revelation has a, a very powerful, self-righteous Southern matriarch, right? yeah. yeah, who is who is uh, uh, <laughs> a woman, a young woman named Mary Grace knocks her out with a book, yeah. Um, so <laughs> in a hospital waiting room, in, in, a, in a doctor's office waiting room, yeah, she has doctor's to office terms, uh, with her own self-righteousness being burnt. You know, there's fire there. Yeah. Her virtues being burned away. And here you see the sun trying to burn through the trees. It looks to the kid, the sunset looks like it's a fire. And I think what you see 
the trees are, she describes them as a wall, as a fortress. The trees ring the property and they are, think of like a fence in a home or even a wall in a castle. They're a fortress. They ring her in. This is her domain. This is her corner of the world she has staked out. She doesn't need relationships with other people. Feed them, go away. Don't want to be sued. She wants to be totally invulnerable in an island and the trees are what wall her in. And the kids see that and they hate it and they want to attack it. And so you get the trees being burned down again. I think the sort of literal what's happening in the symbolic overlay are so closely united. You know, it's not a sign where like a stop sign says stop and you know to stop and there's no connection at all between an octagon and an act of stopping. It's just kind of an arbitrary signification. That's what bad literature does is it's allegory and parable. But here the events themselves bear their own meaning. You don't need to have some assignment of sign and symbol. You just get it. The events bear their meaning. And I think that's part of, I want to talk briefly about, um, on a more kind of meta thing about Christian art and more broadly, is I think a lot of times we try to allegorize things or have morals and messages, but I think for someone who is uh, faithful and can see God, unlike Mrs. Cope, someone who can see God in the bad and the twisted and the grotesque, um, can let it be what it is without needing to um, allegorize or give it some, force some you know, moral meaning in there or make some story that edifies its readers or gives you moral motivation. Flannery O'Connor is um, being a Christian writer by sort of describing life um, as it is, I also want to pick on Thomas Kincaid for a second. I know it's a little easy. This is kind of overplayed, picking on Thomas Kincaid. But, you know, this is a, the kind of Christian art that a lot of people do. You want to know what a good world is? Look how beautiful this cottage is, and those flowers are amazing. And if only I could live there, I would be inspired to virtue and good deeds, and I would love God and... God, if only we could strive and get there and just see how lovely the world is. Look at all we have to be thankful for. Um, but it's sort of faithless because uh, what about the run-down, you know, beat-up cottage? Um, what about the kind of run-down farm? What about there? If, if this is what we have to strive to to reach God or if this is what we have to depict in art to have genuinely Christian art then we're lost because none of us live in a house that looks like this. Um, we try to find God where we are, and I think, um, you know, that's what... Mrs. Pritchard doesn't necessarily see God in the woman with the iron lung, but she knows where to look. She knows where to look. She knows that God is everywhere, and he's in the good stuff too, but she knows that you don't have to build um, kind of your perfect world through discipline and hard work and purifying all of the weeds um, that God is there. He's with the children. You know, the most really religious character in the story is probably either Powell or the small child who says, God owns them woods. <laughs> he sees it. The, he has the childlike faith that Jesus talks about. Um, and, you know, he can find God in the woods. She can't. All she sees is one more thing that's adding to her sense of self and her sense of paradise that could be destroyed at any moment. And that's the vulnerability of attaching the self-justification to these things. And of course, we all do it. We all do it. Ask my, um, my 
like fiance. Uh, Daryl, like if you use a metal spatula on a $4 cooking, like nonstick pot that I got at Bad Bath & Beyond, I'm like, no, this is, this is a $4 nonstick pot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is, sorry to pick on you, but just to give kind of an example of, you know, what it is for me, like we all have these things that we're just irrationally um, over, over controlling about. And, uh, <laughs> And it produces a burden, you know. Eventually, you get to the point where you're miscoping, and you just want to shrug it all off. And of course, that's also the act of grace and the trees burning down is that burden will be removed from her. She will live with less fear because she is hitting the bottom. Um, and she's going to learn once she's there that, that there is a God there, that you can still find good there. You can still be thankful. You don't have to just be thankful when only when you got the best kept place in the country or when you live in a Kincaid world. And so that's what I'm really grateful to for Flannery O'Connor's. I think she can show God um, working, you know, not just in the kind of ugly places or the, you know, the poor places, but can see God working also in the negative events that happen in life and the gossip of a busybody like Mrs. Pritchard. And I, anyway, I think that's kind of where her vision is. Um, let me see how we are on time. We can probably take like one or two more questions. If anybody has anything. Yeah. What's the story where the, the bull kills the, the, the woman who's the owner of the property at the end? Greenleaf, which is published Greenleaf. a little later. Yeah. Than this. this. A lot of the visual imagery is very similar. The sun is going down, there's a blood line of blood along the mm -hmm. horizon. Yeah, I think in some, I mean, to me, Greenleaf is sort of a. Experiences some kind of epiphany as she's being killed by this. By a bull, yeah. Yeah, to me, in Greenleaf is, is in some ways sort of a reworked version of, of this story. She um, comes back to this kind of theme over and over again, and it defies all of our attempts to uh, explain it with sociological discussion, psychology, yeah. and whatnot. It's yeah. like Cain and Abel or something. Yeah, it is. It is. Any other questions, comments? It was this uh, marvelous, uh, that, that moment in the field where the boys are seen uh, by the child bathing. Mm -hmm. Clearly naked. Yeah. And uh, and then run around the field a couple of times in this burst of libidinous energy, I would say. You know, as if to say the fire has already started. Right. I mean, it's not, and this cannot be expunged, right? This is the beginning of the yeah. uncontrollable the passion that is. Yeah, I think that I think that gets at an interesting aspect of the story that I um, I didn't talk about. But I think that's part of where the child comes to is the child sees these boys and the child is kind of curious about it. But um, you know, in the world of Mrs. Cope, there's not any desire. There's nothing. Be anything beyond the tree line is a threat. The sun looks like it's trying to burn through. It's protect, and that means that you are sort of in a hermetic world without, um, without any desire. And I think the kid, you know, I'm not trying to say the kid is like, has a crush on the boys or anything like that, but there's that curiosity and that kind of orientation beyond oneself that um, can only come when the protective 
kind of wall of trees is destroyed. Um, and I think she certainly draws that out a lot more when the boys are running around. And there's also some sort of, you know, almost, nobody's really innocent, but there's almost a kind of state of innocence thing about running around a field just for the joy of it in the woods, in the outside. And they say, this is too good. We, if we don't burn this down, we got to always think about it. <laughs> <laughs> But, all right, we're probably about out of time, but thank you all so much for coming. <laughs>